Welcome to Her Leading Story, a podcast that will inspire you with stories from amazing female leaders and give you some ideas to help you design a life and a career that's perfect for you. It's totally doable, and the good news is that you'll have me and our community of leading women by your side every single step of the way. Let's get started. I'm your host, Julie Artis, and this is Her Leading Story. I am so excited to welcome you back to Her Leading Story. This week's episode features Laura Spinning. Laura currently lives outside of Washington, D.C. and works at the Department of Commerce. She is the Deputy Associate Administrator of Broadband Programs at the National Telecommunication and Information Agency. And she's been there for over a decade. Her career started out in Washington as an intern in then Senator Al Gore's Senate office. She had some experience on the 92 presidential campaign. She then worked at a trade association focused on telecommunications. She spent several years in private industry. She took some time off to be with her kids when they were babies. I really enjoyed talking to her about her career, her commitment to public service, and what she's passionate about in her work. Some of the things that we talk about that I think you'll find really interesting is Laura's focus on how to build high-performing teams, and especially how to do so not just in the context of the private sector, but how to do it within a government agency as well. So we talk a little bit about the different kinds of values that she and her team lean into, how they came up with those, and how she has been educating herself and the people she works with about how to work together in the most effective way. We also talk about books that have been meaningful to her and her career, and specifically a book called How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen. She reads this book every year because she feels like it brings up new things for her every time. We also talk some about hybrid work schedules. And in particular, when you're focused on having a great team who trusts each other, how the heck do you do that in this post-ish pandemic world where teams are meeting more virtually Laura talks a lot about how it's really important to make time for in-person activities that are meaningful, that bring everybody together for a purpose, and help create a sense of trust and community within the team. We also talk some about having hard conversations and how she learned to have hard conversations with her colleagues and be direct with them. We also talk some about the free resource that I have that's linked in the show notes if you're interested. It's called Feedback Scripts for Team Leaders, and it focuses on the words and mindset to have effective feedback conversations with your colleagues or people that you work with 
even if some of that feedback is critical. We also talk about the difference between being nice and being kind and how they're different. And then finally, I encourage you to listen all the way to the end because Laura and I are cousins and share beloved set of grandparents that have passed away but lived into their 90s. And we have kind of a sentimental conversation about what they brought to our lives, what we admire about them, and what we feel like their legacy to us is. I hope you enjoy. This is a fun one for me to do. Welcome to this episode of Her Leading Story. I am so excited to be joined by my cousin, Laura Spinning, (laughs) who lives in Washington, D.C. and works for the federal government. I will actually just ask her to explain what her current role is, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how she got there. Yes, Julie's my cousin. My name is Laura Spinning, and I'm thrilled to be here on Julie's podcast, Her Leading Story. First and foremost, I am married to an amazing husband and father named Andy Dodson. And as Julie said, we live just outside of Washington, D.C., because I am, as she said, a civil servant working for the U.S. Department of Commerce. My current role is as the Deputy Associate Administrator for broadband programs at what's called the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, aka NTIA. What's the purpose of the NTIA? What are you responsible for? NTIA is actually part of the Department of Commerce. And unlike lots of other departments who have a pretty focused role, say the Department of Energy or Department of Education or Department of Agriculture, everything ties back to energy or agriculture. At Commerce, it's really about enabling commerce both supporting it, um, you know, within our country and opening up markets overseas. Our role is as the primary advisor to the president on telecommunications and information policy. So my colleagues represent us in international fora on communications policy. We also look at controversial issues such as cybersecurity, privacy issues, My policy colleagues do that. We also manage the spectrum or the radio waves that the federal government uses. So other agencies who use wireless telecommunication services, our department actually oversees managing that spectrum. So recent years, there's been some controversy about making more of what the federal government uses for its purposes available for commercial use. And there's been a movement in that direction. So that's all done out of our office. And then we actually have a research lab out in Boulder, Colorado. So we do a number of different things, but as the federal government goes, we're still a fairly small bureau. We're, we've In the years that I've been here, about in the range of 200 to 300 people. So since we're cousins <laughs> and we were in, both in DC at the same time, not long after we both graduated from college, I know a little bit about how you started out, but why don't you share with the audience about your undergraduate degree, your move to DC uh-huh. and kind of the winding path that you've taken to get into this um, at the NTIA. So I love that you call it a winding path because it definitely has been a winding path. I went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. I'm a proud volunteer. And while I was 
at UT, I actually interned in our senators or was the senator from Tennessee at the time. And I worked on issues to you know, represent constituents who were seeking certain benefits from the federal government. And primarily, sadly, lots of widows who were eligible for benefits because their spouses had worked in the coal mines. And of course, where you and I grew up, we know about coal and steel and all that, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So after graduating, I moved to D.C. and worked in his D.C. office while he was still a senator from Tennessee. I loved being in a public policy role. I learned a ton, you know, going to hearings and taking notes. And I was a kid out of college, so I was going to hearings and taking notes and reporting back and did that for about a year when he was tapped to be our vice president and spent a little bit of time in Little Rock working on the campaign. Really, I have to say just an experience of a lifetime to get to work on a presidential campaign is so exciting because you have a deadline that is like, there's no move in it. There's going to be a vote and you either win or you lose. And fortunately for me, I had the great privilege to work on a winning campaign and spent a little bit of time in the White House following the campaign, Uh which was an interesting time. You know, that certainly has changed quite a bit in the time since President Clinton was in the office. And then having left there, worked at a trade association. I don't even know if many of your listeners know about the number and breadth of trade associations in Washington, D.C. that represent different industries. This was the U.S. Telecom Association, primarily represented what was at that time the baby bells, right? Phone companies, right? The landlines for you. Exactly. Gen Z's. (laughs) None of them are listening to this podcast. (laughs) Fair enough. But in the few years that I was there, Congress passed the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which really opened up the industry for competition. And Mm. being a glutton for adventure and new experiences, I left there and went to work for a startup telecommunications company that raised $14 billion to change the way that people bought and sold. Um, telecommunication services. And that was also an incredible, incredible experience. I had no idea what I was doing at the time. I chuckle a little bit in retrospect, but had the good fortune of working with really smart colleagues who were willing to be supportive. I had a woman named Loy Mead was my boss. I had the good fortune of pretty early on having a a female role model that was very supportive, but also very good about get out there, try it and come back to me when you, you know, hit a brick wall or can't get over the hurdle. And I spent a little more than 10 years there. What I kind of abbreviate as buying, building and selling telecommunications telecommunications networks. So I spent a little bit of time in the building part of that. So getting the right to put the fiber in the ground on everything from railroad tracks to highways to private property. Um, And then of course, once it was built, moved into a position to do a little bit more business development and look at the different channels that we would pursue in terms of the customer base. We were very mm-hmm. much a wholesaler. So the company level three communications did not sell residential service. Right. It was business to business. B2B. Yes, exactly. I will say, so that's kind of where I got my feet wet, if you will, as a manager. And managing, I will say, in the private sector is a very different experience than managing in the public sector, which probably you, I would guess that academia sits somewhere between the two. 
Yeah, probably. I don't know. Why don't you describe the difference and then I'll decide. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So for instance, I was still at level three communications when the industry took a nosedive in 2000, 2001. And we laid people off at the first Monday of every month. And that was emotionally really, really, really hard because really you typically didn't know until you were told the morning to inform the employee about the reduction in force. So that was a very difficult learning experience, but you know, they were able to let people go without much notice at all. And you didn't have much recourse. Whereas in the federal government, there's a very structured process and employees have at least two different paths they can take in terms of if they disagree with your decision to remove them from service. And that can take a very long time to go through that appeals process. So I would say that my couple of experiences in removing people um, from their jobs in federal service take years versus, you know, a couple of hours. That's the biggest difference, I would say. Wow. That's right. And if you're in those kinds of positions, you know either that it's, very possible for you to be laid off because people around you are getting laid off then versus in the federal government, you know that it takes a long time and that there's a process for appeal. So this would have been like right when everything started taking off in terms of internet in the late nineties. I mean, but it was still pre iPhone, pre Facebook and all of that, but Email, I feel like, was the big thing. Being able to email for business. In the lovely movie with Meg Ryan and <laughs> right Tom Hanks. You've got mail because in the early nineties, you know, you still got the sound. Yes, and connecting, and it was based on the AOL pop up. You've got mail, letting you know and waiting for that. So it was an exciting time to be a part of that industry. And was fiber optic like an improvement on using phone lines for internet? Like, was that the main, was that a selling point for it? Uh, That's a really good question. I think that um, MCI and Sprint, you know, who started offering competitive long distance service, which I'm sure lots of your listeners don't even know what long distance service is, right? It's such an archaic idea that you would pay a much higher rate to say, call home. Yeah. Then you would to call someone locally. Exactly. So I think they had really brought into the industry using long range microwave to transmit wirelessly as well as fiber optic cable, but certainly the amount of fiber optic cable and going that much deeper into the network was all part of that time period. Okay. Okay. And so you were there for 10 years and and then what? And then, then I had kids. kids. Exactly. (laughs) Then I had kids and the industry was because of all the investment that had been made in the mid to late nineties, right? Come early 2000, there need to be some market correction. And I was ready to have kids and, uh, We were doing lots of layoffs, but also I think in 18 months acquired as many other smaller providers, which just made for a really hectic work environment. And so I stayed home with my kids, did a little bit of 
dabbling in consulting here and there and enjoyed that time for a couple of years before going back full-time with the interest group called the Internet Innovation Alliance in like 2007, 2008-ish, really to try to educate public policymakers about how much had changed in the marketplace while public policy was still primarily relying on the 96 Act. So it became quickly outdated just because of the advances in technology. Absolutely. Okay. So, and ironically, part of that is what resulted, I think, in just having this general understanding of how important an internet connection was to participating in the economy and what it meant for both your ability to sell or to buy or to trade, you know, to communicate with family back home. And when Congress passed the Uh, Recovery Act during the Obama administration, it included a total of about $7 billion for expanding internet with the concept being very similar to rural electrification. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, if we're investing taxpayer dollars in what I do, I'm not missing out on that. I'm going to try to make sure that we spend taxpayer dollars as effectively as possible. So it was at that point that I came into NTIA, where I still am, and spent the first, I would say, eight years there, i.e. the Obama administration. Our division managed a grant program called the Broadband Technology Opportunity Program that included just a little bit less than $4 billion to invest in getting rural communities connected. So taking the fiber optic cable, say, to your town and making sure that there was access there. And then I ended up staying because I really, I have a, a pretty strong commitment to public service, number one. And I had started dabbling a little bit in looking at how our team performed. And to some extent, the culture that it created, because as we talked about earlier, that you had so much job security. And I felt like that shouldn't have to be a barrier to having a really high-performing team. So did a little bit of reading on my own, talking to and investing in myself in some coaching services, and really looking at what does it take to be a high-performing team. And I had the good fortune that my boss at the time and now was willing to let me make our organization, if you will, my guinea pig for trying to really look at what are the what are the values that you need to drive into? What are the behaviors you want to encourage, especially in an environment, like you said, where you know people have great job security to, yep. to really drive overall performance? So what are some examples of some things that you did to drive performance? So I'll start with that the commitment I made to myself and then that I communicated pretty broadly was to the values that I held dear and I felt like were really important, those being respect, accountability, collaboration, and you got to have a little bit of fun, Yeah, right? We spend too much time going to the office and with our colleagues and with our customers and clients not to have a little bit of fun. But we also need to, people need to feel respected to feel good about the work that they're doing. And that takes investing in understanding the individuals on your team, what they're passionate about. Because most people that I've experienced who do work in the federal government are there because they do have that um, 
commitment to public service and they want to do the right thing with taxpayer dollars. You know, there's a reason that we call them bureaucracies. There are a lot of rules and regulations that you have to pay attention to that sometimes you can feel like get in the way of being able to accomplish the mission, which for us is not just about making sure that everybody has access to the kinds of services, but also have the skills, right? Because you have to know how to use a computer and how to tap the internet in order really to participate in in today's economy. The couple of things that I guess I would say, my leadership superhero is a guy named Clayton Christensen. He actually passed away in January of 2020. I try to reread his book, How Will You Measure Your Life? once a year, because for whatever reason, every time I read it, I, I zone in on something else. But he talks a lot about how important it is to recognize that the people we work with, and certainly the people that report to you, are human beings first. And that as human beings, we have a desire, right, to have a purpose, to work towards something, and to be appreciated for that. So finding that sweet spot of what people want to do and are passionate about to align with the goals and mission and the activities that you need to undertake in order to accomplish that as an organization, mm-hmm. I would say is that's the hard work that has to get done in order to, to find that alignment and allow for that high-performing culture to really flourish. And that takes time, right? And attention. It does. And I assume that this is the similar case in the private sector and academia, right? There's We have a bias towards people who perform well at certain functions, right? Get promoted to be managers of that function, but we don't always do a good job of teaching them how to be good managers or some, you know, resources to do so. So did you work some on that in your organization as well? Absolutely. Now, what I'll tell you is that this was at a time when we did not have much discretionary spending because the grant program had closed out for the most part. And so our budget was quite a bit smaller at the time. But the little bit that we did have of discretionary spending after cutting back on travel and other like printing, I can't even remember where we scraped all the pennies together from, <laughs> right. but actually engaged in a contract where um, <laughs> we actually then tried to pull most of the team together. We were a small team then to put a strategy together, everybody felt some uh, accountability towards and came up with four pillars, works towards and gave people some flexibility in the role that they would play as we started moving forward. Which brings us about to current day, or at least the past two years, where we've seen extraordinary growth. I'll work a little bit backwards here, but when Congress passed the Bipartisan Infrastructure bill and the president signed it in November of 2021, that included a total of about $65 billion. Yes, I said, you know, billion, (laughs) not million dollars. A portion of that is being administered at the Federal Communications Commission for what's called the Affordable Connectivity Program that subsidizes services. And then about $48 billion of that is being managed by our department um, to ensure that every American has access to high-speed, affordable, and reliable internet service. And then a portion of those funds are dedicated to training, making sure that people know how to get devices, how to use them, and some of the digital skills that are needed to really be productive in working online. Amazing. 
And so in your current role, you're still part of that same team that you were just talking about (laughs) in terms of building the pillars and all that. Which I will say we were 20 people in December of 2020. So even January of 2021, I remember we hired a woman named Sarah Blue, who is just an amazing person. She was what I call our 21st hire or 21st employee. So that, as I said, was January of 2021. It's now February of 2023. And I think we're at least 150 people. Oh my gosh. Um, (laughs) Yes. Holy cow. Some pretty tremendous growth. And we've seen the same explosion in the states as they've started because we are partnering with the states and the state broadband offices who are building capacity there. And it's managing through that dramatic change has been just an incredible experience. I Um, bet. We've brought on some really talented people, but how you manage a team of 20 is very different than a team mm-hmm. of 150. And that excludes the contracting support that we have from some of our partners as well. So we're still figuring out exactly, you know, what the right cadence of meetings with the different groups are and how we stay integrated, how we stay connected to the values We, of course, have new leadership. I'd be remiss if I didn't give a big shout out to our Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, who's the former governor of Rhode Island and a huge advocate for women in the workforce and all of the things that women have to take into consideration in looking at work and jobs. And I just have really been inspired by her thoughtfulness and how do you get women into the construction business? And, you know, you have to think about if you really want to pull them into the workforce, um, you know, you have to consider what does daycare mean? You have to think about transportation. It's not just about, you know, putting an ad in the newspaper or on the internet to get people to come. So I've been very much inspired by her leadership and her vision for women in the workforce. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And then NTIA has a political appointee who's confirmed by the Senate. His name is Alan Davidson, also a very strong leader who ironically brought his own set of values to the organization, which he reminds us of on a regular basis. And he talks about them as excellence, integrity, and kindness, which is a good reminder. You can accomplish a lot and still be kind. What I finally started saying as we were interviewing so many people to bring on board, I started with, we have a very strict no assholes policy. Right. (laughs) I thought that was a good way to cut to the chase. Yes, that's amazing. And it seems like what's been recently very cool is to see these strong leaders in action and have them lead up an organization that you've been a part of for a long time that's gone through periods where you've had lots of money to distribute, then a period of contraction, and then a period of expansion. And you are like, how does this whole thing work? How do we get people to buy in? How do you inspire people to like get on the team to do the things that we want them to do? And then if you see these people that are able to do it at scale in those big positions, it's super inspiring. Absolutely. I mean, to see that kind of change, to be a part of it, and to bring to that change this lens of how do you continue to be a high-performing team? 
because with that many more people, you have that many more personalities, that many more personal interests. Mm -hmm. I have to accept that I cannot know everybody on the team and know what their interests are. And so really it's about how do I work with my colleagues as, as they build their individual teams for the different programs and how do we collectively start to build the kind of culture that we want to have. I think it's called the culture code. Oh, if I yeah, I've heard of that. Yep. Yeah. Now that we mostly work in a remote work environment, I had two takeaways from that book that I have kept with me. One is that the most consistent factor in that high-performing teams in every industry across the board had was their physical proximity to one another. Oh, which is just fascinating to think about in the pandemic slash post-pandemic world. Mm -hmm. But honestly, you know, I think it is really that a big part of that is about the fact that we are human beings and that Mm -hmm. physical proximity, like being in other people's actual physical presence allows you to build the kinds of relationships Mm -hmm. that you need to have the kind of trust and respect to allow each of you to flourish and bring your perspective, your expertise, your vision to whatever problem it is you're trying to solve. Right. Uh, So it's interesting to think about that. I don't really have a theory on what that means today, but that, that I find fascinating. But the second one was something that I've been in more recent years, very, very intentional about. And that is that another very important factor in how high-performing teams operate is that in discussions, you hear from each individual at about an equal timing. Okay. Interesting. Which is kind of hard to do. Again, it does mean you have to be able to organize into, you know, smaller groups and people's voices have to be heard. But I've kind of developed a bit of a hallmark within our organization in that, you know, and our monthly meetings that I lead, I'm really intentional about as new people come on board, giving them space to come on camera. I don't introduce them, that they introduce themselves and take a little bit of time to hear and learn about each other. So that's the one thing that, like I would say, is I try to be very intentional about is if we're, you know, nearing the 30 minute mark of a meeting, and there's a couple of people that we haven't heard from. I work very hard to figure out a way to invite them into the conversation in a welcoming kind of way versus, hey, Julie, you haven't said anything for 30 minutes. You know, it's more like, a, well, Julie, we had a conversation about this offline, you know, last yeah. week. And I thought you had a very interesting perspective, which would give you enough time to think about. And it gives oh, you yeah, a reference yeah. to Yeah, exactly. It's like very similar to running a class, right? Like if you want students to participate, you have to, like, there's always going to be the talkers and there's always going to be the kind of wallflowers. And then there's sort of some, some students in between. And it's the same when you're running a meeting with colleagues where there's always the people that are going to talk and there's always the people that are going to be quiet. And then just because of personality type, I I think more than almost anything else, and maybe some gendered socialization, which we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> but it is a skill that can be developed to run a meeting that is inclusive like that. Yes. And that's awesome. I think that you've been working on that. Back to the first point about the proximity. Have you guys figured out creative ways to deal with the sort of hybrid workplace 
situation or is it still, I mean, I, I feel like everybody's still trying to figure it all out. Yep. So here's what I'll say is there's a large percentage of our team that works out of the Department of Commerce headquarters down in Washington, D.C. So I go in to see people. But I do think that there's something about being very intentional about at what cadence and for what purpose you bring different components of your organization together in person. And I just feel really strongly that you have to find ways to do that. And so far, we have, by default, there have been opportunities that we have taken advantage of and done that. But I think coming into this year, we're going to have to just think a little bit more strategically about what is the right cadence for different pieces of the organization to get together as small groups and what's the right cadence for the full group. And so we certainly by no stretch have figured it out. I I mean, like it's the topic I bring. So I'm such a nerd about it. It's the thing I ask people when I meet them when I'm out on my dog walks and the like. What's what's your office doing about the hybrid workplace? It's amazing to hear how differently organizations Mm -hmm. are handling it. But for those, particularly in private industry, who reduced their real estate footprint significantly and are saving that money, I think there is a movement to look at ways to bring people together where they can build relationships, have a little fun because I'll bring it back to that. You have to be able to have a little bit of fun and that connectivity and connection between people that you build on some kind of a regular basis does translate to allowing you to drive those values that you want to see in your culture and allow you to build a high-performing team. So much to think about. All right. I'm going to ask you a few questions. I ask everyone and then I have one special for you. Okay. So first, how has being a woman in the different roles that you've had, you can pick to talk about whatever you'd like. Has it helped? Has it hindered? What have you noticed in terms of gendered patterns in the workplace? So it's interesting without naming any names, I wouldn't anyway, but working in politics when I was a young woman, especially Southern politics, I vividly remember an occasion where I was asked to leave the room. And I also vividly remember being called girl, which... But with that, I have to say that if I were to think about the couple of people that I know regularly called me girl, or even my boss's name at the time was Roy, Roy's girl, right? I really have to tell you that had I had the confidence to call them on it at the time, that um, if I'd been willing to own it, that I could have yeah. stopped it. And it's really only in retrospect that I have thought much about that. More, As I said earlier, I have the great benefit of early in my career, a woman named Lloyd Mead, who hired me at Level 3 Communications, was an incredible role model. She was extremely supportive and really, I think, helped me become the female leader in an industry full of men yeah. that um, c- could be confident and participate as much as the men in the conversation. Then, as I said, Gina Raimondo, our current Secretary of Commerce, is just not only an incredible, inspiring woman herself, but is really committed to thinking about women in the workforce and Mm -hmm. that it is a little bit different equation than it is for men, right? Societally, we still seem to have the primary duties related to child rearing. And of course, that's 
an important component of who we are as people that we bring with us to work. And she recognizes that, fosters and engenders that. She's a mother herself. So I think I've had the advantage of a number of really good, generally good working experiences. Yeah. It sounds like you've had a lot of great role models. And I also think a lot about both of us having been raised primarily in the South and that at that age, maybe through college, I would have gotten the idea that that being called girl was not the best, but I'm not sure I would have been able to push back either at that point. Just, I just am not that outspoken, Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) you know, and, and I do think when you're socialized as female and you're socialized in the South, at the time that we were, you learned how to fit in. And that was part of the deal then. So it's interesting to reflect back on that. That ties in with my other, one of my other questions I always ask, which is if you had any advice you could give to yourself at age 22, when you were working on the campaign and didn't know that your life and career were going to unfold in the way that it has, what what advice might you give? I think the advice I would give myself is read and take to heart Clayton Christensen's book, How Will You Measure Your Life? Gosh, nobody's ever asked me that question. Gosh, I'm, I'm really stumbling for what that would be. But it, it is kind of about, you know, how do you, how do you continue to be a kind person? Mm-hmm. because there are ways to do that. In fact, I've read your tips on how to give constructive feedback, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not unkind. It's actually quite kind, right? Yes. To help right. people be a better person. But you have to take the time to think about how am I going to deliver this? That's right. And it's the difference between, I think Brene Brown makes this distinction, but the difference between being nice and being kind Right. So nice is you're nice to everyone. It's kind of your people pleasing. You're not going to go out there and give critical feedback. Whereas being kind almost requires that you give some sort of critical or negative feedback and that you do so with a human lens. Right. Assuming that this person is doing the best they can, assuming that you don't know the whole story, starting out in a compassionate way and trying to partner with them right? Mm -hmm. I always think about that too, as the distinction between kind and nice. And so I'm I'm so glad you brought that up. So there was one other thing that I thought about in terms of the advice that I would give myself is that something I would have started earlier that I think I was able to engender because I do have just an incredible boss right now. His name is Doug Kinkoff. We've worked together for, I think, all of the 14 years that we both have been there. And there was a period of time that I'm, I'm not proud of, but where myself and a couple of my colleagues, we were just really at odds. And it was in this time when our budgets got really small. And, you know, it feels like we just had a rotating door in and out of his office, each coming in and complaining about the other. And that wasn't good for me. It wasn't good for them. And I'm trying to remember exactly, it was really the work that we did to try to change the culture and intentionally think about the culture that I finally saw for myself. Wait, you're as much a part of this as anybody else. And that has to stop. And I became much more intentional about if I had a problem with you, then I would come into your office as a colleague, not as a subordinate, but as a colleague, right? And say, look, I respect you enough to let you know what in another scenario, I would badmouth you Mm -hmm. to somebody else on our team. And instead of doing that, I respect you enough that I'm coming to you to say, 
I have a problem with the way you handled this. We need to mm-hmm. talk about it. Wow. Damn, Laura. <laughs> I know. I probably should not be admitting that. No, but, uh, I just think it's, it's amazing. I think it doesn't happen, though. I think that that's very rare for people. I think people get caught up in drama. And even if they're not caught up in drama, they push things away and they just do their own thing. So they can either withdraw or they complain. But like having the courage to go in and really talk to a colleague about something is super courageous. And it's not just that you realize that because you were trying to build a better team culture, but it's also that by doing that, you are, it's like a circular thing. The more you do that, the better and better it gets. Yes. And I, you know, I saw the fruits of being willing to do that with my colleagues. And as I started to say earlier with my boss as well, and it really does help to foster a much better environment because you work through the issue. It's about the issue. It's not about you or them, you know, and you're able to move on and just keep moving. Well, it's all, it's all about learning, right? It is. I have one final question for you if you have time. Yep. Okay. Since we're cousins. Yes. What I want to hear that I think would be sweet, maybe just for our family (laughs) (laughs) is what do you think you might have learned about leading from our grandparents? Oh gosh. We were so lucky to have our grandparents so late in life. For those of you listening, our grandparents, John and Helen B. Artis, lived both too late into their 90s. And they, what did I learn? Well, you know what? I will probably credit them with the fact that fun is my fourth core value. Yes. In terms yes. of how we run teams. They knew how to have fun. They did know how to have fun. <laughs> and obviously, you know, our grandfather, who was a plumber, had his own shop with his brother, knew how to fix or build just about anything and and get running water there too, was, you know, he worked hard around having fun too. So I'm going to go with that. They are the reason that fun is one of my core values. I love that. Good. Do you have anything to add? What do you think you learned from them? Well, I mean, definitely the self-sufficiency, the fact that I feel like I can learn anything, right? So both of our grandparents were makers of different sorts. Granddaddy could make anything. Grandma could cook anything. And also, so crochet, I mean, anything. They had a deep freeze in the basement where they froze bushels of corn and then ate through the year back to the values of fun. And I think we both saw them really enjoy years of retirement, but also that they were industrious, not like hustling, like current productivity, but just industrious, right? They knew how to plan a meal for a bunch of people, have a big party, you know. um, The other thing I was going to say is remember what an incredible incredible hostess grandma artist was. I mean, yeah. you know, she hosted those, her bridge, bridge. yeah, for <laughs> years and knew how to be a gracious host. And, and I, it seems so easy. Yes. Like now I know how much work it is. Yeah. And I'm kind of amazed. 
And I do have a, a strong appreciation for their commitment to community and, yes. and the social part w- was a big part of that, but also their activity with the church and the community around yeah. them. Was and the road runners, they traveled a yes. lot with the group. They're such good role models in so many different ways. And I know we both share that memory and love for yep. them. And I wanted that to be part of this. So. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. I'm glad I was able to come up with a good answer. <laughs> And that's a wrap on this episode of Her Leading Story. If you love this episode, please help me reach more women by leaving a review wherever you're listening. Thank you so much for being here, and I'll see you next week.